2017, the Libertarian Union was formed. Finally, the average Joe Libertarian could find a thriving community of independent podcasters and content providers, all in one convenient location. At Libertarian Union, we'll always have the latest news, interviews, discussions, and even movie reviews. With hundreds of episodes and more added all the time, you'll always find something fresh at libertarianunion.com. Hey everyone, it's Daniel and Robert, the Last Nighters, and we're going to be talking about the King's Speech tonight on the 28th episode of The Last Nighters. You can find the show notes and more at lastnighters.com slash 28. Uh, how you doing there, Robert? Hey, buddy. How's it going? How you doing? It's going. It's You're doing. Good. It's doing and it's going. Yeah. Mm. So The Last Nighters is now on the Launchpad Media, where they're always throwing ideas in your direction, new ideas. So they've got exclusive shows and content, so do check that out at thelaunchpadmedia.com. The, or the word the, is very important for the URL. So the launchpadmedia.com. Check it out. And let's get into the Google description of the King's Speech. Came out in 2010. Drama history, one hour, 59 minutes. Available on the Netflix. It has an 8 out of 10 on the IMDb. 95% Rotten Tomatoes, 88% Rotten, or <laughs> Metacritic. And 89% of Google users like it. So it's got near universal acclaim, but we'll see what we do to it by the end of this. And the description is thus. England's Prince Albert played by Colin Firth, must ascend the throne as King George VI, but he has a speech impediment. Knowing that the country needs her husband to be able to communicate effectively, Elizabeth Helena Bonham Carter hires Lionel Logue, Jeffrey Rush, an Australian actor and speech therapist, to help him overcome his stammer. An extraordinary friendship develops between the two men as Logue uses unconventional means to teach the monarch how to speak with confidence. Release date of November 26, 2010. Director Tom Hooper, and it won a couple of awards. And uh, yeah, there you go. What do you say? What do you say, Robert? Well, that's pretty much what the movie is. Yeah, I mean, it's. it's did it say? I forget if it said that, but it, it said at the beginning of World War II. Uh, it does not mention it in the description. But it does say it's important that her husband communicate effectively, so they go and get the speech, the rapist. I mean, therapist. I mean, I don't think anything he does is important, but okay. <laughs> I mean, surely the people listening probably in the movie and everybody acts like he's important, what he does and says is important. I would say it's probably more counterproductive to any kind of good things happening. But, I mean, we could get into that if you want. Um, I mean, you know, even in a free society, and I say this a lot, even in a free society, um, you know, one of the things that gets thrown at us is, well, what are you going to do about if somebody invades? And we mentioned this many times that, you know, it's Tojo didn't want to invade United States not because of the government, but because there was a rifle behind every blade of grass. And people would come together to defend a land that is getting invaded. Um, maybe not to the level of you know nuclear bombs and B-52s and that sort of thing, or maybe it would. I don't know. But um, maybe in this situation, you need... Do you? I mean, do you really need somebody to get up and make a speech about why you gotta, you gotta defend your country, I guess? I don't know. Daniel, did you think anything he did was important? No, not really. I mean, all it was was just stirring up the fires of the population to be willing to go out and fight for the elites of, you know, the, the rulers of that population. I mean, the very opening was of the Empire Exhibition, which was, I think, in, what, 1928 or something like that, where the stutter is first put on display, where Prince Albert is addressing the audience, and there's 
58 subjugated countries participating in the Empire Exhibition, and a quarter of the world population is under their rule. And it just really struck me as, like, li they literally sp spoke themselves as the Empire. I mean, I always thought that calling something the Empire was like saying that they're bad, you know, like Star Wars style. Like, hey, that's the Empire. There's some bad motherfuckers right there. Yeah, but it had a completely different connotation inside the Empire because they had the idea that they were bringing, you know, civilization to a bunch of savages. You know, I'm sure they thought it was a great thing. Well, and there probably was a degree of that, certainly. Like, not everything that Western man has done has been pure evil, despite what you've probably learned in your history courses. <laughs> uh, there were actually, like, terrible things happening in those societies before Western man was involved. And they also did bad shit, but they also put a stop to a lot of bad shit. Uh, there's a great talk by Ralph Rako that is part of this uh, Mises home study course that I've done. And it's about the uh, European miracle and why it was able to happen. And I'll put a link to that uh, on our show notes page. It's it's a great, fascinating listen. Um, but it, it he just takes on the whole concept of the European man being the destroyer of the world. Well, one of the points he makes is European man had amassed the wealth to be able to do that much harm, Right. Like he had the capacity, the excess capacity with which to do it. So how did he have so much wealth, right? And then what of the practices of those native peoples? Were they pristine angels, uh, unsullied by human nature? Or were they up to terrible, terrible shit, you know? And and these are questions that never get asked uh, when, when you're talking about your high school or your college history courses. Sure. Um yeah, I, I would recommend or at least yeah, recognize that um, you really have a situation where there's, you know, the winners and the losers. You, you know, if if the situation had been reversed, would these people with a similar mindset just do the same thing? Because really you're talking about, you know, this authoritarian um, spreading your ideas around the world and thinking that you're the best and you want to make the world in your image. And like you said, I mean, the people that they're conquering aren't necessarily angels, but I still don't think it's necessarily like defensible. I'm not going to sit here and say that, you know, British troops landing in South Africa just because and then conquering a bunch of, you know, African tribes is like defensible in that sense. It's definitely an NAP violation, but you're right. I mean, once they do conquer those people, they are bringing in things and they're building roads and, you know, telephone lines and electricity and, you know, running water and all sorts of things that is in a way improving the lives of some of those people. But you also could have done that exact same thing in a peaceful way. You could have sold them that stuff. You could have traded with them. You wouldn't have necessarily needed to, you know, conquer a people and subjugate them at, at the end of a sword. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. <clears throat> I mean, my only point is that it's not purely an evil undertaking that was happening, right? There, there were other evils in the world. But <clears throat> I think that humanity, society in general, has evolved and gone through several stages of enlightenment. And I think that we're still working towards one where we actually have a recognition of individual freedom on the level that you and I advocate. And by no means were they there, you know, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, not even today. We're working on it. And I think that the internet is the new Gutenberg press, which is allowing people of like mind to come together and exchange ideas and promote messages. That's what we do on our show, talking about movies from the free market, unre unconventional, real Real unconventional film analysis from a free market perspective. That's what we do. Um, so I think that essentially we're not there yet. And they, they were even further away from the ideal back then, you know, back when the British Empire 
which took over from the Dutch Empire, which took over from the French Empire, which took over from the Spanish Empire, you know, and on and on and on, right? Going back and back, like empires rise and fall. So anyway, I, don't, I didn't mean to derail us into this, but let's talk about Lionel Logue, if you don't mind, unless you have anything else to add for our opening here. No, no, no. Let's go ahead. Let's start off with Logue. All right. So Logue impressed me because even after he knew that this was the prince and royalty and whatever, he was still like, my house, my rules, my turf, you know, you're going to do what I ask you to do because you're here and you're seeking my assistance, my help with your problem. So he was a no shit taker for the most part. I mean, he, he as it wore on, you know, he, he acquiesced a bit, but I was really impressed with his no-nonsense attitude. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on, on Lionel Logue? Well, he was the one person in this movie who, upon learning that he's talking to you know the prince and then he becomes the king and the duchess, right? The duke and duchess of Windsor, is that who they are? And then they become the, the king and the queen. They were York, but yes. Okay, well, York, whatever. Um, but it's good to be exact. So he's the only one that doesn't immediately start bowing and scraping and groveling before these people, which is just, you know, when you see it from my point of view, is just disgusting. It just people, you know, finds out that they're, you're a royal person, then all of a sudden they're like bowing and, you know, please forgive me, great lord. And Loke is just like, or Logue is just like, yeah, okay, what's up? You want to do this? You're doing it on my terms. And I'm calling you Bertie. And we're equals here in this room. And that's the only way this is going to work. And you're going to deal with me making you uncomfortable and talking about things you don't want to talk about. Because he's basically a psychologist. He's trying to get at the root of why Bertie's stuttering you know it's it's clearly he demonstrates in their very first meeting why it's not a mechanical issue it's a mental issue not to say that the brain isn't mechanical but you know what i'm saying and so he's throughout the movie it's him testing the boundaries trying to get this prince guy to get comfortable with him enough to open up to try and really understand and get at you know the the reason why he's stuttering and that was one thing that i thought was really kind of missing from the movie is that one scene where he kind of understands and there's like a revelation and this is why oh this is why i've been stuttering this whole time it's because of this because of these expectations or whatever it is that that we never get that scene and maybe that's why at the very end like all of a sudden he's just kind of smooth on this speech and we're not really sure why he says he stutters a little bit but he says that was intentional i don't know i i, I was kind of missing that scene where we actually got some revelation as to why he was a stutterer but we never do and for me that was what you know that kind of it kind of fell flat for me yeah there were allusions that's to it. it he he talked around it like oh are you actually left-handed but they made you be right-handed and there was a few other things he picked up on they were like oh your your father basically forced you to be not how you are and then your your brother right. made fun of you and it kind of pronounced this stutter it, it brought it along you know it was like in billy madison today junior you know that kind of action right yeah yeah throughout the movie there are hints and we're like oh is that the reason is this the reason is that the reason but there's never and maybe it's it's all of those reasons but we're never given a scene where you know maybe it's something he did actually struggle with his whole life and so then there isn't a, a hollywood moment where all of a sudden you know the the light bulb flips on and all of a sudden he realizes what it was and he can move past it and now he doesn't stutter anymore maybe it really was a lifelong struggle that he just went through and this guy is just slowly helping him and then we end end on the speech so maybe it is a little more realistic so maybe that's maybe that's for the best i don't know maybe but it didn't if you're gonna set it you're gonna tell a movie where the character is struggling with this thing he's got a problem and he's going to a guy to help him with that problem and then we don't resolve that problem it just feels a little bit weird at the end a little bit unsettling for the movie to be about him having a problem and going to see that problem fixed and then not fixing that problem and then the end 
that's just well, not I don't know, maybe not fixing the problem, but certainly strongly improving upon it. Right, like his position was was much better at the end than at the beginning, even though he still needed Logue there to kind of coach him in the moment, right, and walk him through it ahead of time and distract him and get him to do his like tippy toes and dancing around exercises and fuck fuck shit shit piss fuck cock, you know that kind of stuff. Oh yeah, that's the good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that was a hilarious scene. <laughs> Um, but, you know, one of the big um, reasons that this was brought up and recommended to us was because it's revealed towards the end that Logue is neither a doctor nor has any formal training or credentials or anything related to speech therapy, psychology, any of it. And so that can lead us full on into the whole, you know, occupational licensing and permit discussion sanctioning by government sure. and all of that. Yeah, let's do that. I mean, we've mentioned this sort of thing before, but if you're new to the show, this is uh, this is one of our bread and butter type of things. Um, occupational licensing is just a way for entrenched professionals to artificially lower the amount of competition that they're going to face. So Logue is doing what he's doing just because he's good at doing it. And he doesn't need somebody's permission. He doesn't need somebody's little stamp of approval. All he's doing is saying, hey, I can help you with this thing. Do you want help with this thing? Okay, pay me, and I'll help you with this thing. And that's it. I mean, if it happened today in the United States, this guy would be in jail, or he would be, you know, either in jail for false, you know, what, practicing? False practice or something like that? Who knows? They'll just come up with some reason. As soon as somebody, because there is a scene in the movie where he finds out that he doesn't have, or he realizes it, you know, nobody that gets around the king doesn't get scrutinized by Scotland Yard and whoever else. And he all of a sudden discovers that, or he suddenly he suddenly is mad about it for whatever reason. And they have a scene where they're kind of con talking about it and Logue immediately slaps him down. He's like, yeah, I never said I was a doctor. I just said I could help. Do you want help? I'll help. Yeah, and the doctors that he'd seen, and he'd seen them all, were ineffective, right? They didn't solve his problem. That's why they kept going through doctor after doctor. That's how the movie kind of opens, right? And then they eventually get to Logue, who is on this like off-alley-type street that isn't known for you know the, the best purveyors to be. And uh, the, the other doctors were telling him to smoke to calm his nerves and inhale it into his lungs to, to relax his throat and sticking marbles in his mouth and having him read, uh, try to read a, <laughs> out of a book. And it reminded me of uh, my wife and I, when we were living on an island, we went to this apportation medium, like a, I don't want to call him, him an illusionist, but it was like a, almost like a magic show, but it was, um, he was supposed to be like channeling spirits or something like that. And he would like regurgitate crystals and stones out of his mouth and say weird shit about Jesus and like old philosophers from Greece and, and things like that. Yeah, he was an apportation medium. So anyway, that, that scene with the marbles reminded me of that. And my wife and I, we were invited to this thing. It was weird. Uh, I don't know what it is with islands around here, but on our last episode, no, wait, not the last episode, on our wild, wild country discussion with the guys at Liberty Weekly, uh, Robert, you had mentioned that you went to an island might have even been the same island and got into some weird like cult meeting type stuff. Yeah, the weirdos go out to islands in Puget Sound. It's it's where they go. And if you're looking for that kind of stuff, that's where you'll find it. It's it's good times. If you ever need content for a podcast or I don't know if you're like James Randi or somebody, just go out there and you can talk to all kinds of interesting people. Yeah, they're have got interesting ideas. They're out on an island for a reason. <laughs> but anyway, um, oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, I meant to make, I went to say this earlier just to make fun of you, but when Birdie first is introduced to Logue, they say that Johnson was his alias because it didn't seem very important. <laughs> that's a good burn. That is, that's a really good burn. 
Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well done, Daniel. Touche. Well done. I wish I'd done that a little bit better. Oh, hey, one other thing I want to ask you. Um, we did the Harry Potter movie last week, and was the little character who entered, who um, like greeted them at their very first like official session, was that little Ron Weasley, the character Willie? The one of the Logue's sons? I don't think he was one of Logue's sons. I think he was a patient, um, and he greets them, and then they come in and they go, yeah, Willie, he's not able to, he hadn't been able to speak, so his mother had me working with him. But it looked just like Ron Weasley. If that looks like Ron Weasley to you, then let's say it's Ron Weasley, because I don't remember. It didn't stick out to me that it was Ron Weasley, but it very well could have been. I don't know. When was this movie made? 2010. Okay, then it couldn't have been, because Ron Weasley is like a little kid. He's like 10 years old in 2001's Harry Potter, so he would have been like 20 years old. Oh, well, never mind. Never mind. All right, well, back to the occupational licensing. So the official doctors who had the credentials and the education and the certifications and the permits and the license and all that crap were recommending that he smoke and do stupid shit. So Yeah, and that leads to one of the funniest scenes in the movie, if not the funniest, where the prince is telling Logue that, you know, or Logue is telling the prince that sucking smoke is bad. And then the prince is like, well, no, my doctor says it relaxes the the throat. And then he says, well, they're they're idiots then. And they said, well, they've they've been knighted. And then he goes, well, then it's official. (laughs) (laughs) Which is cute. All right. But uh, what did you think about Firth's um, acting in this movie? This seemed to be just like a Firth kind of showcase. This reminded me of, well, one of, you know, probably Jeffrey Rush's most famous movie, My Left Foot, where they play somebody with some kind of disability. And it's always kind of celebrated. You know, if you can pull off some sort of disability consistently for a whole movie, like the world cheers. And there's a certain amount of impressing that goes on. I mean, I thought he was the best actor in the movie, but he also had the most to work with. You know what I mean? Yeah. Now, wasn't it Daniel Day-Lewis who was in My Left Foot? I know Rush is famous for being. Oh, yeah, you're right. It's the piano movie. What's the piano one? Shine? That's yeah, it. Shine. Yep, yep. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, that. I knew the... it was some movie where they got some disability. Right, and and My Left Foot is one, and Shine is one, and wasn't there one with um, uh, Sean Penn? Milk? Wasn't he? Not Milk. Is uh, the one where he's um works at Starbucks and he's got a little girl. He's got Dakota Fanning. Oh yeah, I don't remember the name of Milk it. Milk is the one where he's the politician. What is the one where he's yeah he's half retarded? Yeah. Anyway, some of our listeners will, will anyway. know what we're talking about. And this is of course That's what. Right. Um, Robert Downey Jr. in blackface makes fun of in Tropic Thunder, where he says, you never go full retard. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Bringing it all together. Uh, yeah, Firth's performance, I felt, was really good uh, because, you know, he, w- he was struggling, right? And he was doing that very believably. And he was a bit of a cunt, you know? Like, when Birdie would get angry and his stutter would go away, you know, when he'd swear and, and get angry. But man, he was quick-tempered. He was, he was a big jerk. Yeah, and he also, you know, insisted that he was called, you know, the prince or, you know, his royal highness or whatever title or whatever, as if his status of birth means he's better than you. And the way that the doctor smacked that down was really nice. Yeah. And then uh, when when he said, when Bertie said to him, uh, I hope you're not charging me too much money. And Rush still takes no shit and defies him at every turn. And he says, I'm charging you a bloody fortune. <laughs> Yeah, as if the other guy even would know. Yeah, because he doesn't I mean, even he carry money, right? He, he doesn't even like have to worry about peasantry types of things. Yep, that's that's something the little people have to worry about. Yeah, with his uh, with his picture on it. Let's talk. Uh, let's switch it up just a little bit. Unless you got some more on this particular line. Um, the other main issue in this movie, not necessarily issue, but whatever, another thing to talk about here. <laughs> 
um, is the whole issue with his brother getting married to this divorced woman or this non-divorced woman, divorced about woman. to be twice divorced, right? And because he, because the king is the head of the church, but the church doesn't recognize divorced women as what marriage eligible, I suppose. So then he has to abdicate before he can marry her, and that's what ends up happening. But I mean. Since when do these people not just do whatever the hell they want anyway? I mean, if he's the head of the church, can't he then recognize divorced women or just do what he wants? Or are these people really beholden to the ridiculous rules that other people in their exact same position have made up? Yeah, it seems like, I mean, they were citing a constitution, which as far as I'm aware, at the time at least, they didn't even have a written constitution in England. And I don't know if they do now or not. Not that it really makes that big of a difference when it comes down to it, because George W. Bush was right. It's just a goddamn piece of paper. And they just ignored it every turn anyway. But um, I think that was one of the distinctions that was made when the colonies broke away is like, hey, we're tired of having this like verbal contract issue or situation. We want to write this thing down. I really appreciated the scene where um, the prime minister is talking to the king, or maybe he's talking to Bertie, and he's saying, well, if the, if the king doesn't abdicate, you know, the government will resign. Oh, yes, please. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. <laughs> oh, my stars and garters. Clutch my pearls. What's going to happen to us all? <laughs> if only. If only. Yeah, and just moments before, me of like, he was realizing how little the common man knew of him and how little he knew of the common man. I mean, it's like, yeah, exactly. So why are you ruling them? Yeah, it reminded me of all the times when, you know, the government threatens to shut down unless they pass some budget increase. And then, you know, life just continues on regardless of what happens. Oh, no, the senators aren't robbing on this particular day. Yeah. Anyway. Well, they never officially stop. Well, they take away the things that people actually use, like national parks and other things like that. They don't stop, like, tax collection or the military. They don't shut that stuff down. They don't shut down, like, do they shut down Congress? I don't know. Uh, maybe, but yeah, it's it, they call that the Washington Monument Syndrome, and that's at the national level. But even even the local school districts do the same thing, you know. So they'll do things like, oh no, we're gonna have to cut the uh, football budget. We won't be able to have you know band anymore because of budget cuts. Meanwhile, they get like seventeen vice principals, and so people are like doing bake sales and selling candy bars or doing car washes to raise money to buy uniforms. Yep. And it's just all the conspicuous yeah, they stuff. Take away they the, yeah, they only take away the stuff you like. They don't take away the stuff you hate. It's like we're going to we we don't have enough money, so we're going to stop, you know, setting up speed traps. <laughs> we're going to stop tax collection. They never do that. We're going to stop all the wars, you know, cuz we just ran out of money, you know. So we can't we can't bomb all the countries that we want to bomb. <laughs> That's never the case. Willy shit and fuck and tits. That's the other thing he said during his little uh his rant where Rush showed him that he can speak without stuttering. Uh, one thing this movie does really illustrate well, I thought, was the religious nature of the state and the the hand-in-hand -hand nature of the state and the church in British society as means of control over the people. Uh, they were hand-in-hand, -hand, like the, the pomp and the circumstance and the ceremonies and the costumes of both the religious people and the monarchy is all like in full effect. Like these are people, you know, are special and important and they're, you know, they, you need them, you need them or else, you know, they're the only thing keeping the bad people away. And it just, just really illustrated the, the religious aspect of, of statism. Yeah. And I think in uh, the U S that it's less the religious aspect, the 
these days. I mean, not that the state does, isn't a religion in and of itself, but I think that they go toward the intellectuals for their cover now. You know, so that's sort of the joint strike effort against the population is to have the experts, the academics, the talking heads provide cover for the politicians to justify everything that they do. Meanwhile, they get a seat at the table and a little taste of the glory. So in oh yeah, I mean, is it even is it even a dispute? That anytime there's a war, like the mainstream media, CNN, MSNBC, just in lockstep behind in support of it. Uh, or goose step. Right, right. And they're just cheerleading on every war. They've never, I mean, lately, I mean, I don't remember, I guess I don't remember the George W. Bush administration as much as I should, but I don't remember CNN just cheering on the first Iraq war. Well, you mean the first one back in 91? I mean, the, I mean the second one. I get confused. There's so there's many. There's so many. So many. They all look the same. That's right. Uh, yeah, I, I want to say that know. there was a little bit more resistance to Bush in media at the time. I feel like there was a bit more anti-war sentiment going on and people actually protesting. I think the left was better at that at the time. And then when Obama came in and essentially doubled down on all the same failed Bush policies, but he got a free pass. And if you criticized him for doing the thing Bush was doing, you were a racist. Indeed. Yeah, it's, it's funny how, I don't know, how how much influence the mainstream media seem to have over the general popular opinion in the United States. And maybe they're only reporting on their own biases because, you know, clearly, I mean, Trump won the election in 2016, so they weren't always right. But, I mean, the anti-war left just disappeared. Yeah, I thought they'd be coming back. I thought they'd come out of hibernation, but they haven't, you know? I'm really surprised by this. But, right, but I mean, if I think if this, the mainstream media were still to report on the wars, you know, honestly, truthfully, I mean, I was, I was recently watching the uh, Ken Burns Vietnam documentary, and, um, you know, I have my issues with it. It's not perfect. But um, back then, like every night, there would be, you know, some horrific massacre on the news. And as a result of that, there was a massive anti-war movement. And I don't know if it's just, it was just, you know, Obama's policy of you can't show this on TV anymore that did it, or the mainstream media just stopped covering it like that, or just stopped covering it at all. And that's why the anti-war movement went to sleep. It seems like people aren't necessarily principled. It's just, you know, they're kind of like dogs chasing sticks. And whatever they see in front of them at the time is what they're upset about. Yeah, crows and so if shiny the mainstream objects. Media, yeah. yeah, I mean, if, if, so if the mainstream media reports on the war, they're upset about the war. But if they report on somebody saying a bad word, they're upset about that person saying a bad word. Like all of a sudden Roseanne is like a Nazi and Papa John's guy is a Nazi and whatever. Not that, you know, millions of people aren't dying and being starved to death and whatever. That's that's not anything to get upset about. Yeah. And, and when Trump got elected, I really did have hope that the anti-war left would would come out of hiding. But they really haven't. And, you know, it's really bizarre. And I, we'll get back to the King's speech in a minute. But I was expecting it, right? I was expecting them to hate Trump for everything legitimate or not. And it seems like they focus on the dumb shit. I mean, sure, some of it is, yeah, obviously horrific. Like he's he's a quote unquote leader of a country the biggest mafia gang, uh, he's going to do some terrible shit. But they're totally ignoring the really, really, really bad stuff, the foreign, you know, foreign wars and, and occupations and shit like that. I mean, if it's like they're looking for any little thing to be mad at him about when there's plenty just right there in front of you to be upset about legitimately. Yeah, I mean, if he if he dropped a bomb that killed, you know, 50,000 people, but he also called them, you know, like a slur. A shit, the a same shit whole time, country. There would be 10 times the outrage about the slur than about the murder. I don't know if there people think that the murder is legitimate. Like, oh, well, he's got reasons to do that, but there's no good reason to say bad words about them. I don't really understand it. I, maybe because I just have this luxuriant position of 
having a principle that I follow and understand. Well, he wasn't presidential until he dropped bombs. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I think CNN said that. Yeah. That was like Wolf Blitzer. So good times. Yeah. So they that's that's where we're totally at flip with the, the principles these days. All right. Well, back to this movie. Uh, there was another funny line that I, I really enjoyed. And it was where they had bet the shilling on whether he could read the, um, is it Hamlet? Right, the soliloquy. Here I am stuttering. Junior, which was the thing that Eric, the Weasley guy, and Billy Madison said during their competition, their academic decathlon. To be or not to be. Anyway, so they bet the shilling, and when Logue finally won it, Bertie said to him, "I have no idea what an Australian might do for that amount of money." I thought that was funny. Because of he's got like they got dollar dues down in Australia. Is that what he's talking about? It was one shilling. But I, I think he was making allusions to him, you know, turning tricks or something. <laughs> ah, good times. You know, when you're the king or high in royalty, everyone else is just beneath you. Yeah. Hey, what did you think about when the father, the, the king originally, uh, who, who was doing the Christmas address, he was, t- was Dumbledore. Dumbledore was telling him, hey, you know, back when, when I was young, you just had to look respectable in uniform and not fall off your horse. And now, now with this radio, this new technology... Now you've got to invade the homes of the citizens and ingratiate yourselves or ingratiate yourself to them. Yeah, do they really? I think that was him like giving like a woe is me speech. I mean, seriously, since when do the royals have some sort of expectancy put on them? I mean, what what are their obligations? What do they do? What is what does Queen Elizabeth do? She sits in a chair and waves every once in a while. I mean, there's a scene where, yeah, Bertie is worried about the pressures of being a king. And I'm just like, really? What pressures? I mean, do you really even... I mean, if he hadn't given those speeches, so what? You're king. You can tell somebody else to give a speech. Well, Hitler might have won. What, 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 are, what are the consequences of him not giving that speech? Is he going to be ousted? Or is he going to be overthrown? What? what, what, what? <laughs> Everybody in that, in that country seems to, like, worship the guy. The whole family. They're just, they have such amount of pride wrapped up in their national identity with the, the royal family that they could do anything they want, essentially. I mean, as long as they're not barbecuing babies on their front lawn. What, they could probably get away with that, what too, What do they got to worry about? What do they got to worry about? And probably, yeah, they could get away with that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they got away with the nanny pinching him and not feeding him. Yes, yes. But, I mean, in terms of the way everybody treated them, I mean, the only one who even treated them like another human being was Logue. Everybody else was just bowing and scraping and, oh, King, you're so great. Oh, my God, what a majestic speech. Everybody applaud this guy. Oh, how incredible is this person? And at the very end of the show, like after he gives a speech, then he just stands out on some balcony and everybody's just waving and cheering just to get a glimpse of him. Gross. Gross. This whole movie's gross. I agree, it is gross. But but I can also see a little bit of believability in the isolation that he had, even though he was surrounded by people, he didn't have a real friend or connection on a social level. You know, if everyone's bowing and scraping all the time, like how do you really get to know anyone? So in a way, even though he's surrounded by people, he's still isolated. And we've talked about ostracism multiple times on the show before. Uh, so he had a type of ostracism happening with him that I'm sure was affecting him. Right. I mean, this is like the Michael Jackson type situation, like the glass menagerie where you're so famous, you can't do anything. Yeah, yeah. You can't even you can't like go just out be a normal person to the grocery store or whatever. Right. Without being mobbed. So Michael Jackson would like rent out the entire theater because he couldn't just go. He would just get mobbed. Well, you know what? Boo hoo. <laughs> Seriously, boo hoo. Yeah, that, that problem goes away this is a person... if you don't have rulers. Yeah, this, this is a person whose whole existence is predicated upon theft so and, and coercion and violence so you get no sympathy points 
for living a life that is separate from everybody else. I mean, he at least he was still in a he was in a situation where he could at least walk down the street. People didn't recognize him. It's not like he's on TV. There aren't like print magazines all the time with like tabloid stuff where the prince and the whatever are having a baby or they go out on the town so they dress in a new outfit and that makes headlines for some reason. <laughs> I don't know. I don't mean to shit on things people find interesting, but these people are lauded and celebrated for literally doing nothing, for existing. And because people think that they're living such a fabulous lifestyle. I mean, it's one thing if these people had actually accomplished something in their life, like a Steve Jobs type or something. And, you know, there were like tabloid magazines about Steve Jobs and how great he was or Thomas Edison at the time or, you know, whoever. Like somebody who's really contributing like Thomas, you know, Ford or whoever. But no, these are people that exist to threaten, rob, and nothing else. Literally nothing else. I mean, if you want to argue that these people are diplomats and, you know, it increases the stability of society, well, you're not going to get that argument from me. You could make that argument, and sure, there is a pragmatic, real-world argument you could make that there are good diplomats and bad ones and good monarchs and bad ones. Sure, they're all on a scale, I suppose. But you're not going to argue, I'm not going to argue that um, monarchs are a positive thing in the world. They are probably preferable to democracy for reasons that have been well made on this podcast and others. But no, no, I, I advocate a world that is where, where coercion and violent aggression is looked upon with you know, horror. You know, it's not legal. It's it's rightfully abhorred. Indeed, sir. I agree. Now, there was a moment that I thought was interesting, and, and this shows my lack of understanding of how the relationship between the king and the government worked in England. But he was saying, where's my power? Can I form a government? Can I levy a tax? Can I declare a war? And he couldn't do any of those things. And it seemed odd to me because isn't he sort of like the figurehead of a government and couldn't he just decree that a government exists and couldn't he levy attacks and couldn't he declare war or are they more of just figureheads for show? Do you understand the relationship in uh, the UK related to that dichotomy? Um, I don't exactly know, but I could speculate. I mean, I think back um, during the Magna Carta days, that was a big concession, right, from the king to the mercantile class that the king couldn't just do anything he wanted at all times or something like that. So that's kind of like ever since then, their powers have largely been eroded and it's been more of a democratic process over there, which is why you've got the House of Lords and the House of Commons. And I think that they have mainly, you know, taken control of the law writing and the law creation and declaring war. And that's why uh, you have that movie um, Darkest Hour, which I don't know if we want to do that one or not, but it's about World War II and it's about Churchill and, you know, uh, deciding whether or not they're going to go to war with Germany in World War II and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I don't think it was the king's decision to necessarily do that. He's more of a figurehead. Um, I, exactly what power they have, I don't know. Maybe are they the ones that appoint like the prime minister? Maybe kind of like uh, the U.S. president over here appoints the, the, the Fed chairman. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but it, it does seem like perhaps it's a bit of a uh, steam release valve, you know? Like, here's the king, the royal family, and that's for the adulation of the adoring public. Meanwhile, the government over here, under cover of the king, is is the one actually doing all the law enforcement and taxing and all of those things. So it, like, gives them a happy face. It's like good cop, bad cop, right? Yeah, it's it's 
it's look at these people. These were these are your rulers, but they're good people. They're not really doing anything bad. And then you got your yeah your parliament and they're doing all the bad stuff, and you hate them. But you actually look upon your you know your royal family favorably because they're just kind of like figureheads of the nation. I suppose I could see that. Yeah, yeah. And then even the parliament might get a little bit of a pass because you know you could always like run for parliament, right? Like that could be you one day. Yeah, we're the people. Government's people, right? Right. And yep. you know, Robert, if you don't like it, you can either leave. Or throw your hat in the ring and may the best ideas win. You can go and get elected and go and get Gross, your Daniel. ideas out there and promoted and voted Gross. on. Yes, right. Yes, I've heard this argument before. It's a terrible argument. It is an awful argument. It's completely unconvincing. You've got to join the mafia to try to make the mafia less mafia-like. Yeah. So uh, to that, yeah, exactly. Is the mafia argument is the perfect counter to that. So, so if the mafia held elections tomorrow, would you vote? Would you join the mafia? That's... That's how we look upon government. By what right? It's a group of people. By divine right. <laughs> exactly. Ugh, divine right of kings. Suck it. All right. So I wanted to go back to the occupational licensing just for a few minutes while we wind this down and, and then do our final summary and review because we're we're getting close to the end here. But the um, you know the relationship between the king and the church, the archbishop is like you know he's the worm tongue in his ear, right? And he rats out Logue. And tells the king, hey, he's got no training, no diploma, he's not a doctor, he's got no qualifications. And we've already sort of addressed this earlier. Uh, Logue's rebuttal was, well, I get results. You know, I, I helped shell-shocked veterans from World War One. My only credentials are success. And there were no programs at the time, so there was no way to be credentialed to do this. And then the king says to him, he'll charge him with fraud and throw him in the tower. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, that whole scene kind of confused me. Because the, the king is really angry with him, like, for no reason. And then he does a, an abrupt 180 when Logue actually points out the reasonable answer. It's like, what? You're here you, this whole time, he's helping you. You're, you're getting improvement. And then you feel betrayed because he doesn't have somebody's signature on some piece of paper somewhere? What exactly are you complaining about? Right, and the irony, the irony of this is this is, like, right before they're going to do this ceremony in uh, Westminster Abbey where he literally has to kiss the book Sign the oath, and you're the king. Well, it, yeah, and say like three words or something. Right. Yeah. So answer a couple of questions. If you're worried about credentials, all he's got to do is kiss a book and sign an oath. Like, what credentials does he have to be the king? Well, he was born that way, Daniel. Clearly, he's qualified. Lady Gaga would be proud. He was born that way. <laughs> Listen, women lying in ponds distributing swords is no means for a basis of government. <laughs> if I went around calling myself an emperor. Just because some moistened beans love to scimitar at me, they throw me away. And yes, I butchered that quote. Sorry, you get the point. I do, yes. Monty Python. We we should do some Monty Python. They they have some really great stellar work. But uh Yeah, Life of Brian and uh Holy Grail, fantastic. So many good things. Yeah, we'll have to get that into the mix. Uh but let's get into our final summary and review. Um and I'll let you go first, uh, but I do want to just give you a starting point. The speech at the end, while delivered fairly well with heavy amounts of coaching, was very gross and full of hypocrisy, where they said they must go to war to prove that might does not make right. So he has to use might to make right to negate right by might. Well, I don't see why you're confused. That makes total sense. Um, yeah, the, you're, if you're looking for consistency from a group that predicates itself on violence and coercion while at the same time pretending that it's virtuous and benevolent, you know, you're barking at the wrong tree. But, um, you know, I, I was kind of just grossed out this whole movie. I thought at first, well, I thought it was interesting, you know, Bill, Helen, Helena Bonham Carter without a ton of makeup on, which is interesting. Uh, she did all right. Jeffrey Rush was perfectly good. Um, 
And then uh, British McBritish face guy had the most to work with. I thought he was really good. Um, almost to the point where it was painful to watch his scenes. You know, he's like stuttering. Watching anybody with a speech impediment is really kind of difficult. I mean, you just want him to like, get it out. Say what you're going to say. Let's move this plot along. But um, yeah, you know, for what it was, it was well done. I can see why it got the, the critical acclaim that it did. Um, but, you know, these movies that glorify thugs and murderers and claim that they're benevolent defenders of the people um you know it's funny because they actually do get to defend the people at times you know well and by defend the people i mean you know conscript the people to defend themselves which they would do anyway but you know when hitler declares war on britain or did britain declare war on hitler i think it was the other way around i think they didn't get right they had a certain deadline to hit and then they didn't hit that deadline so then war was automatically declared because britain or germany invaded belgium and then they had a defense pact with Belgium, and so then they had to go and defend it, or at least according to the pact. I don't know. It gets all complicated. Something like that, though. If anybody's interested, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there are plenty of documentaries and podcasts that deal, detail that big time, um, so I'm sure you can check that out if you're really interested, or if you're just hearing about this for the first time on this podcast, which I find very hard to believe. Anyway, uh, this movie, you know, it's competently made, but God, I just can't get past the subject matter. It's really hard for me to get past the subject matter. So I'm going to give two numbers. Um, from a pure movie perspective, this movie's like a 7.6 or something like that. Like it's well made, it's well acted, it's well written for the most part. Um, it's historically somewhat accurate, at least it seems to be. I mean, those names are all the same and he's, his daughter Elizabeth becomes the queen and blah, blah, blah. But from my personal taste as a voluntarist, I can't give this movie anything above like a three. It's just, it's just gross. This is not a movie I would come back to or watch again. It's it, to watch people just bow and scrape before people just because they were birthed by other people that you would want to bow and scrape to for some reason. I, it's just gross. Daniel, what's what's your score? Well, I'm going to give just one number, and I think it's going to be based mostly on just the craft of the movie, and it was interesting to watch, and I really had an appreciation for Logue not taking any shit despite who, who his client was, so I, I enjoyed that part of it. The other thing I really liked was the... How the how the movie was shot. There was something about like the scenes where they had a lot of negative space. Did you notice this in the movie? Where the main characters when they were speaking, they were sort of off to one side and the background was very large and like it was really prominent in Logue's office where he was treating Bertie. And Bertie would be on the couch speaking and there there's that really textured and reddish and greenish wall behind him with a lot going on in it. it those types of scenes really stood out. To me, so I think that this was a well-crafted, beautifully shot film, and the actors were all pretty excellent. I agree with you that the storyline was kind of pointless to begin with. I mean, sure, there's historical value there, but likewise, as a voluntarist, I find the whole concept to be an antithetical to my belief system. So that part of it was hard to watch, but I'm glad that it got recommended. It gave us a little bit to chew on on the occupational licensing stuff, and I'm sure we'll get into that again on future episodes, but my number is a 7.7 overall for this one. Yeah, I just, you know, if he doesn't give the speech, which is what the whole movie is about, what happens? Usually in a movie, you want the protagonist to accomplish a thing, to stop a thing or to be able to do a thing, you know, like an important thing that needs to be done or else bad things happen. This literally none of that happens here. The guy gets a little bit better at talking and then the movie ends. I, I don't know, man. For some reason, it still kept my attention and they made a good movie out of it. I got to give him props. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the craft was there and the, the interest in the story was there, even though the 
events weren't all that exciting. So, you know, even better of a job on their part. Yeah, they took uh, chicken shit, made chicken salad out of it. Well done. <laughs> all right. Well, uh, there are a couple of other things I wanted to mention. Um, the last two episodes have been based on movies in England. I think we're going to go more domestic on the next run. We're going to do Mission Impossible because the new Mission Impossible is coming out on the 27th. I think that one is called Mission Impossible Fallout. So we're going to go back to the Tom Cruise movie that started it all, at least the franchise portion, uh, with him in it uh, back in 1996. So we're going to be discussing that. And if we have uh, time, perhaps also touch on Ghost Protocol because I did a poll in our group and some people voted and it was actually a tie between them. But I think we should focus on Mission Impossible 1 from 1996. Sure, let's do it. Uh, yeah, the new movie is getting really good reviews. And I remember the first movie being pretty good. And I don't know if I would ever want to watch Ghost Protocol again, as it is my least favorite Mission Impossible of all time, even though I understand it's many people's favorite movie. It might actually be more fun to watch it and just trash the movie the whole time. It might be more fun for me, but um, I don't know. We'll see. Come back for that episode. It should be fun. Yeah, it'll be game on. You can certainly trash it all you want. So we'll focus on the first one and, and maybe trash on Ghost Protocol a little bit. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is we are now the Last Nighters on the Launchpad Media, where they're always throwing new ideas in your direction. And I'm going to be interviewed with Johnny Rocket on Blast Off with Johnny Rocket. I think that's coming out on the 27th as well. So look for that, um, an interview with me with Johnny Rocket on the Launchpad Media. And I think uh, that's about it. Uh, the show notes can be found for this episode of The Last Nighters at lastnighters.com slash 28. I do appreciate you joining us for the show. Thank you, uh, our Launchpad listeners and our Last Nighters listeners. And may the, the two groups mix and co-mingle. There's lots of great content all over the place. And uh, uh, we really appreciate you guys. Thank you for being our listeners. And I'll say good night from last night. <laughs>